Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to a highly conversation. In this episode, we are hosting Mariana Pestana, the curator of the fifth Istanbul Design Biennial. Mariana is an architect and independent curator based in London and Lisbon. Her research trajectories include critical social practice and the role of fiction in design for an age marked by technological progress and an ecological crisis. She is a member of the Decorators, an interdisciplinary practice that makes collaborative public realm interventions and cultural programs. She formerly worked at the Department of Architecture, Design and the Digital at the V&A Museum. We delve into Mariana's work, her previous collaborations and speculate about the future for design and how design produces futures in return. The question of curating design, employing social typologies and how design contributes to shaping the world are topics we touch upon. And obviously, we hear her articulating on the current Istanbul Design Biennial, the main reason for our conversation and also a project that we have collaborated together with her. Thank you, Mariana, so much for joining us. Thank you. It's, it's a <laughs> pleasure <laughs> to be here. So I'll start right away. It's definitely the first time, but I hope it's the last time I ask such a question, but creating a Biennale in the midst of a pandemic of such huge scale and impact, uh, how has it been for you? What has changed? What was the process like? And how did you navigate? Uh, yeah, huge challenge, of course, because the pandemic has been incredibly disruptive, not only in the way that we work in, with a lot less physical meetings, of course, and having to always meet digitally, but also because it forced us to rethink, you know, what kind of hygienic and social distancing measures are safe in this moment in time for audiences to be able to engage with work. So it has been really an exercise in thinking and rethinking and, and flexibility. And so we decided with this biennial to, rather than resisting or putting aside or ignoring or pushing forward the current condition that we were going to work with it. Mm -hmm. And that in itself became an opportunity to think critically as well about our own practice in doing the biennial. And so what it has meant in, you know, in very practical terms, it, it has meant that the program shifted from a program that was relying on some exhibitions and, and a public program very intertwined to a series of initiatives that one that is digital and has been designed to so that people can see it and watch it from home, one that is research-led, so the projects are then brought to audiences in the form of a library and so people can safely book a space to, to view them, and then a program that goes out to meet people in the city. So it has been extremely 
challenging for all of us, you yeah. included and all the production team at the biennial, but not just the production team, everyone really involved in making this. Uh, we had to be very imaginative, I guess, about how to operate in this context. But it also forced us to pose questions to ourselves that I think were quite interesting. Like, you know, what does a biennial with less travel, less transport mean? Mm-hmm. Or uh, what does a biennial that is almost entirely locally produced means Mm -hmm. and um, and so I think those are interesting questions not just for this specific biennial we're working in but in general for this format of of exhibiting work definitely and also I think the shift is obviously a challenge but I've been observing I mean one of the let's say the major theme of the biennial is empathy revisited but also there was this kind of focus on the idea of the kitchen in the beginning but through these conditions imposed on the process, it almost evolved into the biennial becoming a kitchen in its own, Mm. uh, in a metaphorical sense. And I really appreciated the way you tackled it in terms of turning it into a more durational process and incorporating the research-led projects on the one hand with the Library of Land and Sea, but also allowing to unravel certain interventions and public actions through time. And in a sense, the time aspect and the process aspect came into play as well. And would you like to say a few words about how the process is handled? I love your metaphor of the kitchen. I hadn't thought about it in that way. I'm going to quote (laughs) you (laughs) from now on. But yes, that's true. I guess the biennial became this... I like the idea of a laboratory, but the laboratory is such a professional Mm. environment, right? You have to have a card to enter the laboratory, right? Whereas the kitchen, you know, anyone can enter it. And that's in a kind of experimental space at which is is open to many people. And the biennial became a little bit like that, a little bit a, a workshop or a kitchen in the sense that many things are being experimented in it. And so... Yes, that has allowed us to expand the notion of place. That's very much a a theme that is common across the programs, actually, and also to expand in time. So the research projects, for example, at the Library of Land and Sea, they begin with the biennial. We, at the Library of Land and Sea, visitors experience objects, documents, books, photographs that are part of the research material of these designers, And then the idea is that after the 15th of November, when the library closes in Istanbul, that the projects continue to evolve. And then later in the year, we will publish, in the form of essays, we will publish some of the results. But to give you an example, Thierry Lab, for example, who are mapping public kitchens in the Thresprotia region of Greece, and many of these kitchens are led by cooperatives of women, later in the year, they will also do a project in Greece in support of these communities that they are researching, which we call a legacy outcome. Um, Mm -hmm. So the projects are not exhausted at the biennial and they're not finished in the moment that they enter the biennial. So I like to think that this biennial showcases beginnings rather than finished things. And then the new civic rituals, which is a series of projects that will be distributed along the city of Istanbul, Again, some of them will happen now, will be installed now in October, and some of them, roughly half of them, will open in April next year. We have been working with a group of curators based in Istanbul, 
we created a group called Young Curators Group, and they have been really instrumental in establishing connections with specific communities and groups and places in Istanbul to host these projects. So the idea is that after the biennial, the projects are not dismantled, and but they continue to live. And, mm. and so f- that's why it was so important to create relationships with the municipalities, with groups, with communities to ensure that continuation. So yeah, the biennial shows like the beginning, the first <laughs> appearance of, of these projects, and then they will be adopted. And also in a way, kind of allowing to foster or supporting at least to a certain extent the possibility that these projects exist. In the case of the research projects, it's about maybe partially funding or igniting their process. Mm -hmm. And in the the civic rituals, it's also engaging with the groundwork, making sure that there is a, in a way, counterpart or recipient within the community or within the context that these exist so that it can continue. You already mentioned the digital, but there is also a digital dimension, which will Mm -hmm. be kind of partly visible as part of the exhibition, but it will also exist so that it's not place bound to a certain extent, but Mm -hmm. also accessible by people from anywhere in the world who have internet access at least. Yeah, we call that program the, the critical cooking show. And partly it was because... I know that since the pandemic, there have been so many programs that gravitated into the digital realm, but I at least find it sometimes difficult to engage with certain formats from home. So for example, a conference is something that usually takes place in a social context. To watch a conference from home is harder than watching it in, you know, (laughs) watching a conference digitally is more difficult than it would be to watch it in its real place. And so that's why we use the cooking show, because the cooking show is a format that has already been developed to be watched from home on the TV. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, <laughs> it's been perfected over the years and it's also changed a lot. So in the beginning, the cooking shows were highly produced, normally even hosted by celebrities. On TV, the host would demonstrate a certain recipe or food preparation. But also during the pandemic, it was interesting to watch that many people were sharing recipes from their own homes and you could see the intimate space of their kitchens and so on. And I guess our cooking show is a hybrid of that mm-hmm. in terms of genres, have a documentary tone. Others are very informally sort of shot at home in participants' kitchens. And the critical there basically refers to the awareness that they raise about our relationship to food and the geopolitical dimensions of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with the cooking show, I'm uh, thinking like we both have an interest in formats and typologies and existing notions of how certain things are structured and mediated, whether in space or in media as mediums. And the cooking show is one of them. The library is one of them. But you've been also very much engaged in uh, this question of typology and formats. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also in your previous work, I can trace some similar examples. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what it is that attracts me so much to typology. It could be just as simple as my architecture background. <laughs> uh, 
But I think that working with existing typologies and then subverting them slightly makes it easy for people, for audiences, for the public to engage in particular ways with what we are doing. My practice is always participatory. So often the projects that I make as a designer, as a curator, they don't really make sense unless people are involved in them. Mm-hmm. And so the definition of a clear typology is almost like a you set up a protocol from the beginning or an etiquette. You set, you know what you're meant to do at a library, you know what you're meant to do at a restaurant or at an auction, right? And so I I like to play with that because it's almost like the public becomes not just an audience, but a participating audience. Because um, in the art gallery or in the exhibition as such, there's a general expectation. Of course, that's not the (laughs) the case always happily, but the expectation that... um, the audience is the receiver of something that is given mm-hmm. to them. But once you start playing with typologies, then, you know, at a restaurant, you're, you become a client. At an auction room, you become a bidder. At a library, you become a researcher, or, and so on and so forth. But I must say also that this shifting program, I didn't do that alone. I was joined by Sumitra Upham, who is now leading the Library of Land and Sea project, and also Billy Muraben, who has been also responsible for the critical cooking show program. So this was very much, you know, the three of us thinking how to make sense of this new situation and so on. Also, the exhibition itself is a typology with certain protocols, with expectations, Mm -hmm. as you say, which is on behalf of the audience is rather kind of passive in a way, in terms of preconceptions. But there is also another layer to it, especially in the context of design. I mean, now uh, more and more we are seeing design exhibitions, but it's not maybe not necessarily the common format where we encounter design works. And how do you consider curating design or could be your observations or your position? But what is curating design about and what should it be addressing in your point of view? Big question, John. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been trained in curating. So I think this happens often when you gravitate from one discipline to the other. Someone was reminding me this morning of something I said a few years ago that, you know, you're always in exile when you're inter or transdisciplinary, right? Mm. So you always feel like um, an amateur in some way. But I think that for me, what motivates me about, about curating design is this idea of the rehearsal, right? Is the context of the exhibition or the cultural event creates its own state of exception almost. Certain things can be enacted and it's almost like this suspended space between reality and fiction where you're allowed to experiment and to imagine other possible worlds, other alternatives to how things are. Mm-hmm. And I find that extremely powerful in design. So I'm, for example, when I was at the V&A and I curated the Future Starts Here exhibition at the time with Rory Hyde and, and Kieran Long, we did this experiment at being kind of critical curators in the sense that we would reveal the ambivalence of certain technologies and designs that are popping up in the world right now. And uh, at the time when doing an exhibition about futures, it seemed important to 
showcase not just the good examples, but also the very problematic ones. And in that sense, I think that our role became more of closer to that of a journalist or a, or a critic, right? Mm. Um, but I came to believe that that was in, in some ways a missed opportunity. In what sense? Just because I think that the cultural institution has an aura and a gravitas that will elevate anything you put into it. So mm. uh, despite your critical voice, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely convinced mm. that that's... No, but it's interesting. The museum de facto glorifies whatever it is put inside mm. it. That's a very interesting comment. But yeah, please go on. That's my reflection after, for example, doing that project. And for example, in relation to this theme and, you know, in the last four or five years, I've been engaged in a project that was called Ecovisionaries, which was a research and investigative project that resulted in a number of exhibitions, but it was about uh, how design art architecture is responding or certain practitioners within it are responding to the climate crisis that we live in. And, you know, during that process, I, I became aware of how we became numb to numbers and data, statistics that are given to us in, in newspapers, in the news. And I thought that in the field of design, I think nowadays, in this moment in time, I don't think it's enough to raise awareness or to recognize the crisis in which we're in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, at this moment in time, I'm, I'm also very interested in, in discussing the projects that are effectively experimenting with alternatives. So in this biennial, we've included work by people like Studio Ossidiana, for example, who are de facto designing architecture for humans and birds and other species as well. Because I think that's the discussion that is important to have, you know, this idea of designs for more than one, which is in the subtitle of the biennial. But I think it's important to look at those projects and to learn from them and the practices that are doing this effort in sort of changing the paradigm of, of design today rather than sort of critiquing from a safe space, but more so taking action and risk, because that's what comes with, with experimenting and with action. Yeah. So it's not in a way speculation for the sake of speculation, but for really searching for other possibilities and alternatives or fictionalizing in a way as a tool to yeah. search for possibilities. Yeah. I think so. As you might know, I'm a big admirer of speculative design. Mm -hmm. I've followed, uh, for example, Dan and Rabies and all of the cohorts of students that they formed for many years. And I think the speculation that happens purely in the context of a gallery, for example, mm -hmm. Dan and Raby, I like how they sometimes describe their projects, for example, as props for films that never happened. Mm. But just this idea that you could imagine these projects existing in the world that operates at the level of your imagination, I think that's super important, of course. I believe, though, that what we are doing, for example, in this edition, is slightly different because it engages with real contexts and places. Mm. Yeah, And so, for example, Orkan Telhan and Eli, they're collecting soil from the different Bostans, different gardens in Istanbul, and analyzing that the microbial life that they find. In the end, they will offer everyone a fermentation kit so that visitors can carry the microbial culture with them and in their gut, right? It's a project <laughs> that exists to make you reflect about the complexity of life that exists in, you know, near you, wherever you are, 
but it also takes that step of you know implicating you in this case i think uh, what a carrier or a guardian yeah. for this culture that to then yeah. take home and also i mean in the case of orkan it's also a matter of actually doing it like he's really producing these bacteria and yeah it's not completely in the fictional realm Uh, exactly. But also in the library, there are very, in a way, geopolitically charged research endeavors that are taking place. And I think all in all, hopefully, they build a narrative, a kind of strong narrative of uh, possibilities and also criticalities. Yeah, definitely. In all the projects you mentioned, also in the biennial, you mentioned your collaboration with Sumitra and Billy your work together with the collective, the decorators. It seems like the collaboration is also an integral aspect of how you work, how mm -hmm. you operate. Do you want to touch on this notion of collaboration? Yeah, and uh, of course, there's also you and Asla <laughs> that have <Yes>. been fundamental <laughs> collaborators throughout this process. Thank you. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Really extraordinary. And of course, the Studio Maria Joao Maceo yeah. in Porto, and now Max Thurlwell, who's also doing the sound design mm -hmm. for the Biennial. I cannot work in a different way. For me, it's really important to create a forum mm -hmm. for discussion, right? Of like-minded people with, with whom you can develop the project and have it grow in, in unexpected ways. And I think that's because also I'm quite drawn to letting the research guide the project and the process define the outcomes. I find it very difficult always at the beginning to have just a blank sheet of paper and somehow the idea of a group with which you start to give shape to mm -hmm. that, to the first ideas, I find it really enriching and, and for me it's very necessary. But that's also, you know, I started the decorators right at the beginning of my practice. And we've always had a non-hierarchical structure also. So there's four of us at the core team who are like Chavillar Font, Carolina Caicedo and Susan O'Connell. And then for each project we grow or compress depending on the project needs. And also because each project takes us in an unexpected direction, we always have to learn new skills. So when we were running a restaurant, for example, you know, we had to serve at the table and help with the confection of dishes. We also have to sometimes to build literally things. Once I found myself organizing a boxing tournament, which is something I'd never thought that I would be doing in my life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe tell us a little bit about that one. Okay. <laughs> Again. But this is only to say that This becoming, I think, this um, the learning in each project, I think, is is something quite fascinating. The fact that you you're never quite mastering your practice. You mm. that's the way that we began working, and so it, this has meant that we were always a group of people, kind of together discussing what the project was to become, and so. I think in a way that, that then replicates in other projects. But yeah, the boxing tournament <laughs> came up because this is a project we were doing in a market back in 2014, a street market that was in a square in East London, in a place that's sort of in the outskirts of, of London. It's very east, but it's also kind of relatively close to Canary Wharf, which is one of the richest districts in London. This one is one of the less rich districts. But it's a rare occasion for London that you have a public square. 
and public squares uh, were a big number of them. They were instituted in the post-war and often to host street markets, food markets. Mm-hmm. And what was happening in this location was that there was a new project for these squares, but the market had disappeared. And so we were advising the council on the future of this square. And uh, for that, we did a number of initiatives to discuss publicly what the future of this market could be. So to retain its civic character, but to even to admit that the program could change. So even though it wouldn't be a market, it could still be a civic square, but it belongs to the citizens. And so we started by creating a radio uh, where we would invite loads of people that worked, lived, in the area, also politicians, urbanists, architects, etc., to together discuss what this would be. And then these conversations in the radio led us to different partners. One of them was an amateur boxing club, which is the Lansbury Amateur Boxing Club. And they had this dream that they wanted to organize their first boxing tournament, and they'd never done that. One of our experiments was to transform this square into a boxing ring which involves, you know, a lot of responsibility because it's a big thing for a club to, to host a tournament. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> literally a boxing Not literally, tournament. literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just as a means to experiment, you know, what, it, what is a square for? What's a public square for? Yeah. And how can it serve the different actors that effectively use it and have a take in its future and have an interest in its future, you know? Very interesting. So all of these... On the one hand, they touch on typologies and formats, as we mentioned. But on the other hand, it seems to me that there is also a kind of scripting of space or a scripted space that takes place. It's like a, the projects come with a scenario of sorts. Mm. And that I find also very interesting. And it's not only done about designing a space or it's not only about creating an exhibition, but it's also materializing that scenario, both with people and with material props and physical dimension. Mm. Uh, and I find that very interesting. And also in the way we've been discussing together the, the scenario for the libraries, how it will be used, what kind of experience will take place, an observation, but they maybe collide in this idea of a scripted mm. space. How interesting, yeah. And you recognize this in the <laughs> biennial as well? Yeah, I don't know how it will resonate or how it will manifest in the outcome, but in the process of making mm-hmm. it and in the way we've been discussing the library and the stations for the civic rituals, I think it's somehow there. Yes, definitely. I guess the way I think about it is... The idea of constructing a fragment of a possibility, right? So you imagine um, mm-hmm. a certain scenario and then you build a fragment of it, which is sort of an access point to this future or this possible that you are imagining. You know, I'm very interested in fiction, as you know. There is a, a literary theory of possible worlds, which is sort of discusses, you know, how worlds are made in literary fiction. And one of the things that I find fascinating about that theory is this idea of accessibility bridges, right? Mm. So there is, fiction starts with decentering gesture of, so you create like a, let's say, a parallel universe, <laughs> decenter the actual universe yeah. into a parallel one. And then someone narrates this other reality. And there's a pact that is made between, let's say, narrator and reader 
in the book, you know, in the experience of reading a book. And in the field of design and architecture, I'm quite interested in what that pact is, but also mm. these accessibility relations. So how do you, from the real world, let's say, how do you access these possibilities? And I think design ultimately is about making futures, right? Every new design sort of projects a, a vision of the future. It can be very banal or it can be extremely avant-garde and, and completely change everything we believed in until now. But I believe that cultural contexts often form these accessibility bridges where citizens through design can sort of enter for a small period of time for, you know, often in a very specific place, but enter the visions that are proposed by designers and makers. And then the design exhibition becomes interface to have a glimpse yes, of these I think so. <laughs> uh, possible futures and act as the accessibility bridges yeah, I think in so. processes of world building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Collective than world building. But obviously, you know, I'm making this up slightly as we talk. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I think I believe in it, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's always collective. And I think design is cultural production. And it should be treated as cultural production. I mean, when I'm in the teaching context, mm -hmm. sometimes uh, the students ask me, like, do we need another chair? And I usually ask them back, like, do you need another song? <laughs> of course yeah. we do. You know, design is kind of cultural production and it's a possibility among many others. And each proposition is also encapsulates in itself other ways of, as you say, whether banal or whether totally thought-provoking, but other forms and other possibilities. And maybe on that note, we can open if there are any questions. Would be lovely to have. This was amazing, by the way. It's too much to elaborate and ask a formulated question, to be honest. But I have a more general one, maybe a big one, which is uh -oh. to ask you, <laughs> <laughs> as you are the current curator of the Design Biennial, how do you see the humankind? Are we progressing or do you think we are in a period of regress? Oh, wow. Very complex question, but I think we are progressing always. I think it's difficult to, to believe that because the current moment is bleak, right? It's, uh, it's paralyzing. It's very difficult to imagine when we will get out of this pandemic crisis. And then on top of everything that was already happening from, you know, politically, economically, But I think I'm on the optimist side of things where I, I do believe that we can progress into a better place. I'm, I do think, though, that we need to, to do that. Perhaps we, we need to question what we mean by progress a lot. And uh, I was speaking about the future exhibition I did at the V&A. And when I was doing research for it, I was looking very much at Silicon Valley and that context and the sorts of technologies that were produced there. And it's almost like that way of thinking about design, that design, that one idea is good if it's scalable, if it becomes universal, if it serves every single process. Mm. It has become widespread and I think it works for many products and services and so on. But I think it's also problematic in many ways. And I think the design gestures that I find inspiring at the moment, they develop more intimate 
relationships with the places in which they operate. And that can be as simple as um, developing a bespoke solution that um, enables people to have a more resilient relationship to food, for example, like public works who are designing like a drying structure for fruit and vegetable for people to, to use and, and, and do that. Or I think it could be by using, for example, endogenous materials and locally produced goods. But yes, I see a young generation of, of designers in some of the universities that I've been visiting recently I see like a really acute understanding of the complexities of today and, and a desire for change, which I think is hopeful. Nice. I agree. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hello, Mariana. Hi. Good evening. Thank you for being with us. I would like to cover uh, Futurology, departing from one of your past exhibitions as well. Future starts here. At that exhibition, I think there were also a lot of corporations, right? Yeah. So if I remember very correctly, like I'm just going to make a very brief summary of the main inquiry. I think it was, what if we would reconcile with the technology rather than being intimidated by the technological progress? And the, of course, this is like a very brief way of putting the inquiry, but this intimidation is one of the intriguing factors when we think about the future, because the state and corporate conglomerates are, of course, like, like this is one of the impending elements of how the life is going to be changed in the future. And, uh, and yeah, the states are only trying to keep up with the corporate influences, especially in the technological field. But I would like to ask, how do you position yourself in terms of technopolitics? I mean, why do you think when we talk about the future, technology is always one of the first factors that comes to our mind? Yeah, when I was doing that that show, indeed, we included corporations and and work by very large companies, actually, like Facebook or Tesla or Bloomberg. And the idea behind it was to, you know, maybe it can be summed up in, there's this like Paul Virilio's famous uh, quote that the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. And I find that image very helpful to say there was a big discussion at the time around the neutrality of, of technology. And I guess what I was interested in doing was positioning these technologies as tools and to show that these tools are ambivalent, that is, that they have two sides to them or more. And so that then by understanding what the tool is, then we can begin to, to discuss who is using that tool and what for, and to begin to understand the biases, the limitations as well that, that its technologies have at the moment, which is not to say that they won't evolve in, in unexpected directions in the future. But it was a little bit, yeah, a call to raise awareness. We, you know, at the time I, I remember thinking, okay, the museum is this public facility and many of these technological companies are interacting with citizens on a daily basis. So I thought it's important to have the conversation about the complexity of these tools and technologies and, you know, what's sort of lies behind them, but also to position them next to other technologies that are, may appear a little bit more low tech or that are not born out of these like big technological centers and sort of place them at the same level. I don't believe in uh, exactly the neutrality of technology because the technology is never 
developed by an abstract entity. It's developed by humans and, and certain humans that have specific age ranges and professions and, and so on. There are some certain developments which make me think that the world is also slowly getting shaped by the corporates rather than the states. And I think the states are in full compliance. So I wanted to connect like this remark to a quote that I very much like by Laboria Kubonics, the feminist international collective. They say that if the future doesn't include you, then change the future. So mm. do you think technology actually offers us like enough tools to, to make these kind of interventions also in terms of design and hacking and everything else? Well, we would also have to, I guess, define what we mean by, by technology, right? I think a redefinition and a redistribution of tools is essential as a, as a nourishment for change, of course. But um, I think that we tend to associate progress and development with, with high technological, let's say, the, the sort of high technology, and less so with low technology. And also maybe, especially in response to your reply about the question on progress and how you kind of highlighted uh, the kind of intimacy to context as another way and as another kind of positioning mm -hmm. in a way. With regards to knowledge, with regards to technology, I mean, technology is after all knowledge of how to make things possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that sense, I'm also reminded by a kind of the tools for conviviality or the convivial tools by Ivan Illich and how he imagines mm -hmm. in a way, maybe it's too late for that with regards to what, how Rank is positioning his question. But nevertheless, there's always, I think, that possibility of imagining convivial tools that are at once enabling and not enslaving, mm -hmm. so to say, and that are in a way related to communities, but that can also be expanded and multiplied or scaled up in Silicon Valley terms to reach wider populations. And I think that design still has the capacity and the capability and the competence and the compatibility achieve those, I would like to mm. believe as well. That's a very nice way to put it. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank Mariana. you. Mariana. It's been a pleasure. This was, yeah, definitely been a pleasure. It was really worthwhile. Thanks for your eloquent and elaborate reflections on both the Biennale and the state of design and thinking about exhibitions of design in general. And also, I particularly enjoyed the way you brought in the, the idea of world mm -hmm. building and providing glimpses of future in the processes. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you and Asla, who is now coming here. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Bye-bye. <laughs> I think conversations with you always take this unexpected turn and uh, it's always incredibly nourishing. Thank you so much for your questions. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Same here. Thank you everyone for listening. With Mariana, we explored the idea of employing familiar formats or typologies in public projects, how the design of such work proposes scripted spaces that can then be acted upon by publics. 
But perhaps most importantly, we deciphered the reason behind making exhibitions on design, such as the Design Biennial. Mariano offers that such displays work as accessibility bridges to possible futures that not only inform, but contribute to the shaping of such futures. Design status as cultural production is still a bit clouded, and we are also reminded that displaying commercial technological works in museological context can act as a valorization despite all critical intentions. But two things are certain, that design is part of a cultural landscape today and that we will be hearing and seeing more from Mariana Pestana in the future. I want to thank you for joining Ahali. Make sure to check out our episode notes to find out more about the works we discussed in this episode. You can also visit us at ahali.space and please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live gatherings and Q&A sessions with our guests. Hope to see you next time.